Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. But first, we start with the COVID crackdown in Metro Vancouver. New provincial orders from Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry affects the Fraser Health Region, the Vancouver Coastal Health Region, basically Metro Vancouver. Indoor group physical activities like spin classes, yoga classes, group fitness, they are all banned for two weeks. An updated COVID safety plan uh, coming out from the Regional Health Officer Really major, major stuff coming out for Metro Vancouver on this COVID crackdown. My guest is Dominic Dubois. He is the CEO and founder of the Spin Society. His business is affected by these orders. Dominic, thanks a lot for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Mike. I, I appreciate it. Can you tell me quickly about your business a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we've been in business for six years, and we exclusively give uh, indoor cycling classes, so group indoor cycling classes. Uh, so we think of ourselves more as a kind of a boutique premium fitness studio. Uh, yeah, and we have three locations across Vancouver. Okay, three locations in Vancouver. Now all three are shut down now, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. As of okay. Saturday night. Okay, this has been a wild few days, I'm sure, for your business, uh, starting last week when uh, Bonnie Henry specifically singled out spin classes as a potentially dangerous activity for spreading covid and dominic i want to play this for you and get your reaction to you uh, reaction from you this is dr henry last week okay talking about spin classes we've heard about the the spin class in um, in ontario where 60 some people were infected we know there's been spin classes here in bc where we've had 20 or 30 people being infected right now spin classes in the in metro vancouver are dangerous we should not be doing those things. We need to find other ways, I should say, indoor spin classes. The outdoor ones, we haven't seen transmission. But, you know, those are the types of situations where we need to, to pay attention to how much virus is in the community and uh, what types of risks we're potentially exposing ourselves to. And, uh, you know, I, I have to say I've not been to a spin class myself, but you know, we're in <laughs> bikes, people are sweating, it's a hard, I have seen them. <laughs> and, you know, there's usually loud music and you're in an indoor space and people are, are breathing heavily. Um, the instructor is showing instructions. Right now, in Metro Vancouver, that is dangerous. Okay, okay. Dr. Henry there last week saying that these spin classes are dangerous. Dominic, what went through your mind when you heard that last week? At that time, she hadn't shut you guys down, right? But she was saying your business was dangerous, but she hadn't shut you down yet. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's where, uh, that's where the anger came from. It's, uh, it puts us in a really terrible spot where, um, where we were being labeled as dangerous, which has immediate you know, repercussions to our business, people phoning in, canceling passes and asking what's going on. But then that statement was followed by another statement saying that there was uh, no plans to, uh, to have any closures. Yeah. yeah. So that, that left us kind of thinking, okay, well, this doesn't make any sense because we've just taken a huge hit and now you're asking us to continue on. Um, so that was the immediate reaction. Yeah, no, that must have thrown you for a loop for sure. And it, it's interesting that you pointed out that at that point, before you were shut down, you're shut down now, 
but before she shut you down, your concern was when she was going out there and saying your your business is dangerous, but not shutting you down at that point, you were worried about being qualified for government assistance when your business, if, without being formally shut down, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So w- without being shut down, we, we're still collecting s- some revenue. And uh, just given the nature of our business where we do uh, collect revenue before we service, right? So unlike a restaurant where you get the food, you pay for it. Um, we can collect revenue for classes that are going to be taken in January, for example. Um, so we're always kind of ahead of the curve that way. And, and so our revenues are like slightly too high to qualify for many of the programs um, at their maximum. Right. right? So, uh, but, but now we're on the reverse side, we're stuck in a spot where not knowing how long these closures are going to last, make it very hard to uh, plan for business purposes. Okay. Yeah, man. Oh man. You're, you're in a tough spot here for sure. Now, on Saturday, we had a rare weekend update here from the provincial health officer in which she did bring in this new health order, shutting down spin classes. So your three studios are shut down. Here's Bonnie Henry talking about that. As of today, businesses, recreation centers, or other organizations that organize or operate indoor group physical activities must stop holding these activities until updated COVID-19 safety plans are in place so they can be held safely. And these need to be approved by our local medical health officer. This includes spin classes, yoga classes, group fitness, dance classes, or other group indoor activities where people are increasing their heart rate. And we have seen repeatedly, not just here, but around the world, that these are venues that we see rapid spread of this virus even with people who don't recognize that they are ill. Okay, Dr. Bonnie Henry there on Saturday, shutting down spin spin uh, studios and yoga studios. My guest, Dominic Desbois, he runs a, a three spin, spin studios in Vancouver. He's now shut down as a result. Are, are you in some ways kind of relieved to, to be shut down? I mean, it's better than her saying your, your business is dangerous and not shutting you down and not qualifying for government help. Like, would you rather be yeah. formally shut down? I, I wouldn't go as far as saying relieved, uh, just yeah. because, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't agree with the dangerous label to, to begin with. Uh, I, I can understand and fully appreciate and respect uh, Dr. Henry's comments. Um, but but I'd, like, I'd like to have some type of substance behind these claims, right? So Why do, why do you say are, it's not dangerous? Well, no. So it, in the way that we at Spin Society operate yeah. since July 1st, We've put in place lots of programs and lots of protocols to keep people safe, and I believe we've done that. Um, But now, turning to what has happened, which are closures that are very targeted, you know, when we're looking at likely just a few hundred businesses, right, when we think of group fitness classes. So all I want is to know what the result of this will be, correct? So what are we expecting the outcome of this to be? So uh, are we going to be in a much, much better position in two weeks? I, I truly hope so. And I, I, I really want that to happen. Um, but currently where we are is that there is no approval process in place. Um, so we're closed for at least two weeks, but likely more, uh, until the government can figure out their pr- approval process. And then we can get through the backlog of fitness studios who are going to want to reopen as soon as possible, Correct. So there'll be lots of phone calls going into these uh, regional medical health officers' offices asking for in-person inspections or plan approvals. 
And I don't know what that's going to look like. Are you worried about going out of business? Uh, at the current state, I'm, I'm hoping we can make it through. It's really hard to answer that question without knowing how long this one's going to last. Yeah. Um, okay. the, uh, the spring closure has left us in a, in a, a pretty terrible business situation, uh, which, you know, luckily we've been able to make it through. But this second closure is going to hit hard. Okay, she mentioned, uh, you heard her describe in the clip we played there that this is a two-week order, shutdown order, but she also seemed to kind of open the door for businesses reopening under some sort of locally approved COVID safety plan. So you mentioned that there, there's no approval process for that. Like, what, what is your understanding about when, when you might be able to reopen? Uh, there's lots of ambiguity in, in what has been published and, and the statements that have been made. Uh, no. for, to my knowledge... I, I don't believe it's possible to reopen within the two weeks with an approved plan. Uh, the way I read it and understand it is that after a two-week period, we can get approved given our plan. But we cannot reopen until that plan is approved, which may run longer than two weeks. That's the way I currently understand it. Dominic, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. All right, welcome back. Well, let's talk about the calls that come in every day to the Vancouver Police Department. They get more than 700 calls for service a day. That's about one call every two minutes. And I was amazed by the screenshot of calls on hold that was on one point Saturday that was posted by Vancouver Police Department Deputy Chief Howard Chow. This is an amazing tweet, and I encourage you to follow me on Twitter to to check it out. Uh, More than 700 calls a day. Not uncommon to see up to 100 calls coming in at any one time. The screenshot that he posted showed uh, 57 calls holding at that moment, and when you take a look at the shot, it's amazing. Uh, Caller requests assistance, possibly someone stabbed. Uh, caller, construction worker had a knife pulled on them at a construction site. Uh, another caller, building manager calls, was punched in the head, bleeding from the head. Owner of, you know, you get stuff, owner of a restaurant reports a B&E to the basement of their business. Probably get a lot of calls like that. Lots of calls at SROs, single room occupancy hotels. Resident threatened to stab a coworker. Just goes on and on. One call every two minutes. I think it's a real eye-opener. I encourage you to check it out. Let's talk to Howard Chow about it right now. He's the Deputy Chief of the Vancouver Police Department. Deputy Chief, thank you for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Good morning. Good morning to you. This is a, It is an eye-opener. When I look at this thing, it sort of really puts into perspective the type and volume of calls and the type of calls that you guys are dealing with literally on a minute-by-minute basis what what sort of what do you think the public should take away from that i I think it just shows that this this just goes on every day every two minutes there's another call every day this is a it was just a snapshot in time on the friday night uh when i didn't have much to do uh ended up pulling that together and and getting it out uh that evening but i could pull it at any given time of the day and you're going to have a uh, a number of calls very similar to that. And, you know, I mean, the media and the public are very accustomed to, to hearing about the homicides and the extortions and the robberies and the sex assaults and the, the most serious calls. Right. But it's the litany of other calls that exist that require police attendance that they don't hear about. And and I think um, I think you framed it up well. Uh, I'll give you an idea, Mike, if I can, is sure. violent calls. Every day we get about, you know, these are offenses against people. We get about 70 calls a day to do to deal with that. Theft from autos, about 47 a day. Theft of autos when somebody's stealing your car. So you can imagine every day in Vancouver there's about four cars stolen. 
disturbances. We get about 50 of those calls every single day when somebody's talk, calling in about, you know, two people arguing on the street and it looks like they're about to get at it. Somebody on a bus that maybe is decompensating, uh, men, you know, with mental health illness and yelling, screaming, maybe a loud party. Uh, we get about 50 of those a day. Uh, and here's one interesting fact, fact is assisting other agencies like fire, like ambulance, like a social worker. We get about 30 calls like that every single day. Like I noticed um, that I noticed that in the screenshot you put out, it has some calls for requesting assistance for to EHS. What is EHS? That's ambulance. Ambulance, okay. Emergency health, yeah, emergency health services. Yeah. Okay. So, 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 for example, you know, I got one here. It says EHS requests assistance for their safety. Possibly someone stabbed. There's a lot of those type of things. And then you get things like, you know, people might call them domestics or whatever, but caller reporting ongoing abuse by a step parent. Uh, caller says an ex-boyfriend show up, showed up, bit her, and assaulted her. Uh, another caller says uh, someone has nude photos of of this of another person and is demanding money and cash not to release them. So I mean, the type of calls just sort of runs a, a very wide gamut. You're right. Domestic violence and some of those criminal harassment type calls. Those are um, calls that are very time consuming. So it may tie up, tie up a couple officers for hours, if not the whole shift. We get about 14 domestic violence calls every single day. Um, so, uh, only, only compared to last year, uh, comes in second in terms of the number of increases we've had in domestic violence, uh, ever since we started recording them. So some serious concerns there. Um, and you know, like, like what I said, even when we talk about mental health and oftentimes there's conversation about, yeah. Hey, police should get out of the space of mental health. We're happy to engage in those conversations, but just some reality is there's no other agencies that are out there right now that deal with some of these aspects where 84% of all mental health calls we go to involve danger or violence or some criminality that require police to be there. Yeah, no, that's another thing that I've heard a lot of people point out as well. Like people say, why are the cops doing these criminal health, uh, mental health checks? And the fact is a lot of them involve threats and violence and disturbances that do require a, a police response. I'm sure you guys would like some help with it. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. that's something we've asked for, for for probably last decade is a lot of these upstream uh, issues and drivers are, are downstream to us in policing to deal with at 3 o'clock when, in the morning when no one else is available. But also know that that remaining 16% where you have somebody who says, I'm concerned about my uh, uh, the 84-year-old um, neighbor who hasn't been seen in a week or somebody who's yelling in his or her room, I'm going, the police still need to go there because how are you going to get access right now? How are you going to breach the doors? You know, the legislation and the case law allow police to do it. No other agency is enabled right. to do that. And when right. you get in there, who's going to secure it after? Uh, and if there is something to investigate. So even that 16%, it's ambiguous, you know, whether we can really extricate us ourselves from that space. Yeah, no, I think it's really something for people to remember, especially when you hear people say, oh, the, defund the police or the police should be scaled back. I mean, these guys are, are run off their feet. You can just tell from looking at these call sheets. My guest is Howard Chow. He's the deputy chief of the Vancouver Police Department. What is the uh, the sort of the trend lines on, on your call levels? Like, and Is COVID-19 uh, increase the number of calls or increase the complexity of this situation? Absolutely. When when we expect that everybody would be shuttered in and businesses are closed and a lot of people are working from home, you'd think that our crime numbers would, would be completely flat uh, and in a downward trend, and that's not the case. We saw spikes in our commercial B&Es. We saw spikes uh, in street-level assaults and, and violence. 
uh, our anti-Asian hate crime, we saw 878% increase on that because of COVID. Uh, we saw 16 of our 24 neighborhoods see an increase in violent crimes in Vancouver. Wow. Throw, in, throw on top of that encampments, uh, the opioid crisis, the protests. Uh, so it's been a, a busy year for us. We, we haven't been able to scale back. We haven't been able to isolate. Like We're still on the front lines and dealing with these types of calls that we, we have to deal with. Yeah, when you talk about increases in violent in violent crime in some of the neighborhoods that the VPD polices, like what type of violent crimes are on the rise? Uh, we're seeing uh, assaults, your most serious assaults, ag assaults, uh, aggravated assaults, I, sh- I should say, assault with weapons, some offensive weapons calls. We're seeing uh, street disorders, your B&Es go up in, in areas like Strathcona. Um, we're seeing in Chinatown, again, your B&Es, your arsons, your mischiefs going up. Um, so assaults in Yale Town have gone up 14%. Granville Strip, uh, again, offensive weapons went up 100%. Um, so wow. uh, some alarming uh, numbers. And, and uh, we were releasing a survey later this morning um, at a press conference to, to just kind of show the crime and crime perceptions of our, of our residents and businesses out there and, and uh, some of the responses that we're going to also release at that point in terms of what we're doing about right. it. When you take a look at the, the call volume right now, as you mentioned, more than 700 calls typically in a day, which is a call around every two minutes. Is that like, what is the trend line in that? Are the number of calls going up or is that pretty steady over the last few years? Where are we, where are we heading in that direction? In, in certain crimes is going up in certain t- crimes. It's not, if you talk theft from autos and it, this is where it skews the numbers. Theft from autos is probably, you know, not saying it, it, it's uh, not to minimize, minimize it, but yeah. uh, they're probably our least concerning for property offenses. Well, they make up 30% of our call, our call types. So that, because of COVID, has plummeted, and it's dragged down all property crime offenses. But your commercial B&Es have gone up all year. Uh, residential B&Es are staying fairly static. Uh, your weapons assault, the most serious assaults calls have gone up. Over the last five years, assaults against police officers have gone up 86%. Wow. Um, so th- there's there's a number of other serious concerning neighborhood crimes that uh, are causing all the public outcry and uh, comments that you're hearing and reading yeah. about every day. How is the response time doing? Like when people do call the VPD, uh, do they typically get a fast response from the police? I, I, I imagine you must have to kind of, obviously the most serious calls get the most urgent attention, but for like if someone calls in to report a crime, do they typically get a fast response? And it depends on the call. So that's a good question. We get asked that quite a bit is that uh, how do we prioritize? And it's much like a hospital emerge room. Um, And the most serious calls, if there's a stabbing, guess what? Unfortunately, we're not going to the noisy party call. Uh, And that's where a lot of uh, the calls stack is because the the most serious calls that are taking place are stabbings. I was just going through the... uh, uh, our overnights, our briefing over the weekend, and we had about four or five stabbings over the weekend alone. That ties up a team for hours. Um, and so it's triaged. Uh, and, you know, the, the response time is based on the type of call it is. So on Halloween night, we had 800-plus calls. We had a minute. Uh, every minute we had a brand-new call. So to suggest that we're going to be going around and move, asking people to space out, and put their mask on, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge, even though I 100% agree it's important. But when we're dealing with the stabbings and, and the volume of serious calls, 
uh, that has to take a second uh, backseat. You mentioned you mentioned briefly some of the home the homeless encampments, notably Strathcona Park, which I, I believe still remains the largest homeless encampment in, in Canada. Uh, how has that impacted uh, police response down there? Do you get a lot of calls down there? Yeah, absolutely, we do, and not only in the park itself, but around the neighborhood, and that's where the concern is. Is um, we looked at a, a three block area surrounding Strathcona, and we, this is where we're seeing the increases in crime. So what you're hearing from the residents and people in that area is absolutely true. They are seeing a spike in crime and um, and some of the impacting their sense of safety and security. Um, very predictable. Uh, we're seeing very serious crimes in there. We've had a. Uh, uh, you know, known very violent offenders live in the park. Um, so it's a, it's a concern. And what, what exasperate, exacerbates that is, is that when we go in there, oftentimes we're met with hostility. So that means that a, a two-person unit can't go in there. It means we're pulling members from other areas to come in to assist with the call types. Deputy Chief, thank you for coming on today. Thank you. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about smoking in your condo or an apartment unit now. This is something we've talked about before on the show. Should you be allowed to smoke in your own condo, in your own apartment? What about secondhand smoke for the people living next to you in a multi-resident building? Key court ruling here in Ontario. Ontario court ruled that a 73-year-old woman there who smoked in her condo unit told to butt out by the Ontario Superior Court because of secondhand smoke going into an upstairs neighbor's unit. Now, this would not apply necessarily in British Columbia, but for people who are looking for a smoking ban in condos and apartment buildings, giving them a lot of hope. Let's check in with Jack Boomer now. He's from the Clean Air Coalition of BC. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hiya, Jack. Hi, Mike. What is the uh, the rule right now in British Columbia? Like right now, you're allowed to smoke in your in your condo or apartment, correct? Well, you are unless there are rules and bylaws in place. And one of the yeah. big things in British Columbia is that with a rental, um, you can have there is a um, uh, causing a. Uh, uh, affecting the quiet enjoyment of your neighbors if, if your neighbor is smoking. And so there are rules that affect that. And also in stratas, it's called nuisance, so that you can't cause a nuisance to your neighbors. So, yes, um, if uh, there are no rules in place with uh, your uh, residential tenancy agreement within your land, uh, with your landlord or if there are no strata bylaws in place, then you likely can smoke, but you can't right. do it at the expense of your neighbors. Okay, some some apartment buildings and some strata buildings have got bylaws that say you the the building's smoke free, right? Sorry, so, some condos are smoke free. Correct, they are. Uh, they yeah. what's what's happened is that the bylaws uh, are in place that say nobody you won't be able to smoke in your unit or right. in your patio, common property, or other things. And some just have general rules that say you know you can't smoke in common property. Do we know how many condo buildings? Are smoke free? Like, is there any kind of registry that that shows what percentage of buildings are smoke free? Mike, I wish we knew. We started right. uh, when we were working on this. About we've been working on this for 16 years, and when oh. we started, we tried to uh, develop a bit of a registry. And in the early days, we we would get a handful of people telling us that they were going smoke free, but unfortunately, we don't have the resources to keep track. And so it's one of those things that there is no place that we're aware of that has a complete and fulsome list of rental buildings that are 100% smoke-free, 100% smoke-free or stratas. 
Okay, let's talk about this court ruling in Ontario. What happened? This was a 73-year-old woman. She represented herself in a court hearing at Ontario Superior Court. She was smoking in her in her condo, right? The people yes. upstairs were getting a secondhand smoke in their unit. She argued she should be allowed to smoke. Hey, this is my home. I should be allowed to smoke here. What happened? Well, basically, what was happening was it was causing a nuisance for the people upstairs, and their health was being affected. And so they said, you should do something about it. And from what I understand, the strata tried to find ways to ameliorate the situation, and and they weren't able to do that. And so, unfortunately, it ended up in a court case. And basically, the judge in this instance said that uh, ordered her to stop smoking because her smoke was causing a nuisance to the person upstairs. And so, again, we know that secondhand smoke is harmful. It's toxic for people who breathe it. In every workplace in British Columbia and basically across uh, Canada, we are protected from the known cancer-causing agents in secondhand smoke in the workplace. Yet we go to our home, our castle, and we're not protected there. And right now with COVID happening, many people are working from home. Their home is their workplace as well as their residence. And... um, that is, you know, people should be protected from the known cancer-causing agents in secondhand smoke. Right, but of course, of course, smokers would make a similar argument that, look, yeah, my home is my castle, so I should be allowed to smoke in my own home. And it's interesting that this woman in Ontario, her name is Yaromira Linhart, she was 73 years old, she, she described in court how she had fled a, a communist dictatorship in Eastern Europe and came to Canada f- to find freedom. And she said now she's being told in a free country that she can't, she can't smoke in her own home. So, you know, there, there are so many things that people can't do in their home uh, when they live in congregate living in multi-unit dwellings. You can't play your loud music 24-7. Uh, there are rules about that. In some places, you can't have a barbecue on your balcony. There are rules in place because people are living in close proximity. And so what the Residential Tenancy Act as well as Strata Act Um, are trying to do is to say that when you are in congregate living, if you are affecting the quiet enjoyment or causing a nuisance to somebody else, then that needs to be, um, uh, rules need to be put into place. And we know more and more evidence about the harm of secondhand smoke. And so what, there are ways that people who smoke can get nicotine uh, that does not cause harm to others. In British Columbia, we have the best free patch and gum program of any jurisdiction in Canada. So people can go to their pharmacist if they're a smoker and say they would like free patch and gum and and they will be afforded ways to get clean nicotine, which will not affect people around them. Okay, speaking of Jack Boomer from the Clean Air Coalition of BC's uh, campaign for smoke-free housing for many years in British Columbia, are there any jurisdictions, uh, let's say in North America, where smoking is banned in all condo and all apartment buildings? You know, there's a place, uh, there's a municipality I know in uh, 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 California where they have moved to ban smoking 100%. The name escapes me right at the moment, but what they did was it occurred a couple of years ago, and it is because people's health was being compromised, and it's a community where there's a lot of more uh, older people. And so uh, when they presented to city council just to get a bylaw affecting uh, common property stuff, the city council, I believe, saw themselves in the people that were, were coming in with their, to present and said, we should be, um, we, we should be making this 100% smoke-free. And so it's a move okay. in this direction. So we should talk more about that. Okay, so it's interesting that obviously there, there are very, it, very few 
jurisdictions in North America that, that do this, right? Why is that? Why have you guys? You mentioned you've been fighting this fight now for for many many years. How come you can't you can't get it across the finish line? Is there just well, resist? There, is there resistance to it from governments to to do this? Well, first of all, there there isn't. Comp- What's happening is that there are some jurisdictions where we are seeing movement in in Canada. For example, in Saskatchewan, they have banned smoking in uh, social housing. 100% social housing is 100% smoke-free. And the reason for that is that the government recognized that people who live in social housing often have, well, may have compromised health and that they have few options of where they can move. And so therefore what they did is they said, we're going to make a blanket prohibition on smoking in, um, in these units for social housing. And so what we are asking the Clean Air Coalition, which includes the Canadian Cancer Society and the Heart and Stroke Foundation, what we're asking for is five or six simple things that the government could do to move in this direction, whether it's dis- disclosure rules, saying, you know, if somebody moves into an apartment that they, people are informed where people smoke around them or uh, in a strata, wh- what the r- smoking rules are, because a lot of people don't see it's a problem until they move in and find out, gee, I should have asked that question. In British Columbia right now, our smoking rate is around 10 to 12 percent of people. So increasingly, as fewer and fewer people smoke, uh, tobacco products and cannabis is a whole other area of um, potential concern in terms of smoking, but again, people can get cannabis in other ways as well. But as we move in this direction, when fewer and fewer people are, there is more opportunity to uh, move in this direction. All right, welcome back. Talking about smoking in condos and apartment buildings with my guest, Jack Boomer. Let's go straight to your phone calls here now. Christina in Burnaby. Hi. Hi. Yeah, I just wanted to say I've been a smoker myself for 25 plus years. Um, but I do have to say, when I uh, lived in a townhouse, I would always smoke outside. I don't smoke in my house. But I did not realize that the smoke from my patio was wafting into, you know, other people's windows and whatnot. And my neighbor politely asked, asked if I could move elsewhere. And I mm-hmm. did. Because that was, I simply didn't realize it. So that was fun. And then we moved um, recently and, and bought a home. And my neighbor next door asked me politely again, we have a yard with a little patio. Um, He said, would you mind not smoking when the children are around? He goes, because, I mean, as a smoker, sometimes you don't realize how much that smell bothers non-smokers. And and were you able able to work it out with your neighbor the second time there, too? Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I've got a yard, so I would just move elsewhere and kind of go behind so that it doesn't go into... I mean, he was so kind about it, too. He's like, listen, I realize this is your space, um, but I have to be respectful as well. Okay. Because, yeah, and also, too, because yeah. um, I can't stand the smell of marijuana smoke. Mm. So that irks me, too, but I do understand this woman's position. It's tough, okay. but I think eventually it's all going to be... Inevitable. Christina, you sound like a good neighbor. Thank you very much for, for calling in. So, Jack, I mean, there's an example of someone who kind of was able to work things out with a neighbor, right? But it's not, that's not always the case. I think that, uh, first of all, it sounds like a, uh, she's a wonderful neighbor. Sure. And yeah. I think most neighbors want to be good neighbors. However, when people smoke, uh, uh, nicotine addiction is an addiction, and people need their fix. And so one of the things that we're talking about is we're not saying people can't smoke or get their nicotine, but they need to do it in a way that does not affect others. And so she was fortunately able to find a reasonable uh, solution and accommodation, but that is not always the case. Oh, I know. 
There have been cases. Oh, there have been some epic wars between people over this. I've heard from a lot of people just described as fights that went on forever over this stuff. Let's go to Peter in Surrey. Hey, Peter. Hey, how are you doing, guys? Listen, Good. I am a, just so clear. I'm a non-smoker. Okay, now, but I'm tired of people always legislating everything. You know, you got to think of everybody, not just yourselves all the time. I live with neighbors that I don't smoke dope either, just a choice. I live with neighbors that smoke dope every night in their deck. You know what? It's something I got to deal with. If you move into a strata and there's a no smoking strata bylaw, that's fine. But if you're in somewhere and there's no bylaw that says you can't smoke, I don't understand why people always want to legislate everything. I don't like it, so I'm going to try to get it out. That's not fair. You got to think of everybody, not just yourselves at a time. Let me reiterate, I do not smoke. But if somebody next door to me smokes, that's their business, and I have to learn to deal with it okay. instead of always trying to legislate things. Okay, Peter, thank you for the call. Jack, what do you say to him? Well, Peter, I think that you too would be a great neighbor because you would allow basically anything to happen next to you. However, there are many people whose health is severely compromised by breathing secondhand smoke, or they find it a complete and total nuisance. And so there are, as I mentioned earlier at the top of the, the show, there are many things that people cannot do in multi-unit dwellings that are legislated and not legislated, whether it's playing loud music, whether it's barbecues, whether it's other actions and activities. And therefore, that is what we're saying is that we know secondhand smoke is harmful for people who breathe it and that people should be protected from it. Okay, let's go to some more co- phone calls here. Let's speak to Brent in Langley. Hiya, Brent. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hi. Hi. Uh, good morning, Jack. Um, I moved into a new strata building, which was actually uh, made into a purpose-built rental. They were supposed to be a strata. Anyway, um, there was a new uh, smoking bylaw that was actually put up to all tenants, and it says all tenants signed their agreement, including Clause 47, no smoking or vaping of any kind permitted on the residential property, including within your rental unit, balcony, and any common areas. And it states that any a violation of all these terms and conditions are a uh, breach of the tenancy agreement and shall be a cause for ending your, your notice of a tenancy and signed and dated. And uh, we basically we have smoking that's coming up uh, through our vents, uh, through our balconies. Oh. Like it's designed where there's vents coming from your washer and dryer and they get built in the units, right? So every balcony has it and it's coming up from... First floor, second floor, and management. Do you, know where it, do you know where it's coming from? Like, who's smoking? Well, the management basically says, oh, well, I'm sorry for the inconvenience. It shouldn't be happening on the building. I said, well, it's happening. And it's, and then they're trying to cover it up with uh, maybe cooking stuff, you know. And, and yeah, and I, I mean, we moved in here to get away from it, from our other building. And uh, oh, I was on your show one day, right? We were talking about it coming up through the walls and stuff. Well, I told the management, we got away from that. She was well, I'm really sorry, but I, I I think I know where it might be coming from, but I'm not sure. And it's like, well, get to the bottom of it. And it's extremely frustrating. I mean, wow. uh, you know, I just don't want to be around that. I know people have rights, but they can go off the residential property and do what they need to do or, okay. you know, maybe get their nicotine somewhere or somehow, you know, other you know, way. I mean, okay, Brent. Yeah, th- thank you. Thank you, Brent, for the call. Jack, what would you advise him to do? Well, Brent, uh, Brent's situation is is very common where people think they're moving into a smoke-free unit or a building, and uh, and it it may not be the case. And I think the what we would suggest is if you go to our website, smokefreehousingbc.ca, and you uh, we have a number of resources there, and some of them include information about going to your 
the uh, rental pro- the property management company and basically saying, you know, they need to do something. This is affecting your quiet enjoyment. And so I would push forward with the issue that way. Um, mm. uh, you know, we don't provide legal advice, but basically there, there uh, we have numerous examples of what um, – something similar, and that's what I would suggest, is keep pushing the issue and uh, saying okay. that it's in the agreement and what are they going to do about it. Okay, squeeze in one more call here. Kirsten in Maple Ridge, hi. Hi, my name is Kirsten Duncan. I'm a two-term counselor with the city of Maple Ridge. Oh, hi there. We got, hi, a, minute, we so got a minute left. What would you like to say? Gotcha, real quick. I okay. uh, just wanted to say that I'd be very supportive of implementing some policies in my city uh, for housing that would be smoke-free. I think it's a tricky situation, though, with the rental market, and I want to make sure that people that are trying to find rental housing are still able to find accessible, affordable housing and aren't left out of the market because right. they're so smokers. You, so you would not support a blanket ban on smoking in condos or apartments? Not Correct. necessarily. I think right. we need to make sure that everyone can still find affordable, accessible housing. Okay. But if we're still having units available for people that are smokers, I think it would be appropriate to have some uh, housing that has bans in place so that you can still have units for people that have uh, health conditions such as myself that would okay. have smoke-free units. Thank you, Councillor, for calling in. Jack, we're out of time. It's always great to have you on. Thanks for coming on. We'll have you on again. I'm going to call Kirsten. All right, welcome back to the show. Here we go with the election that captivated the world now. U.S. President Donald Trump, his bruising battle for the White House with Democratic rival Joe Biden. It took four days of vote counting, but finally on Saturday, the major American news networks made their projection. Joe Biden is the president-elect of the United States, but... Donald Trump refusing to go quietly. He has so far refused to concede the election. He has unleashed his lawyers here to fight the results in court. He says the election was fixed. Okay, we'll see how Trump does in court here. It is his right to dispute the result. I don't think he's going to overturn this election, but we're keeping an eye on that for you. But here's something that I've been thinking about. Trump may be on the way out, but is Trumpism still part of the equation for the Republican Party? What is the future of this party? What is the future of the conservative movement here in the United States? Have a listen to this here. You're going to hear uh, Trump speaking here, and here he is speaking about how the Republicans actually did very well in this election. He got a lot of votes. They won some seats in the House. Here's Trump. We kept the Senate despite having twice as many seats to defend as Democrats, and in a really uh, much more competitive states. We've uh, we did a fantastic job with the Senate. I think we're very proud of what's happened there. We had many more seats to defend. They spent almost $200 million on Senate races in South Carolina and Kentucky alone, two races, and hundreds of millions of dollars overall against us. At the national level, our opponent's major donors were Wall Street bankers, And special interests, our major donors were police officers, farmers, everyday citizens. Yet for the first time ever, we lost zero races in the House. Okay, you can't deny it, Trump. He still got a lot of votes. He got over 70 million votes. That's a lot. Let's check in with Matt Dalek now. He's a political historian and professor at George Washington University. He's an expert in the modern conservative movement in the United States. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Matt, thanks a lot for coming on. My pleasure. Okay, what do you think about if Trump is the loser of the election here, which it appears it, it, it is, um, 
what does that mean for the Republican Party and the conservative movement in general in the, in the United States? I mean, he's still got a lot of votes. The, 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 the Republicans still picked up those seats in the House. So it's not a complete loss here for them, right? Well, it's not a complete loss. And in fact, uh, they came closer to winning a majority of the House, much closer. And uh, as Trump said, they may well hold the Senate. Right. Um, and Trump got 70, 71 million votes. Um, right. Look, I think the, the, the huge question is with Trump gone, with him removed from the presidential stage, um, what hap- can Trumpism, what does that look like? Like, what does it mean without Trump? Right. Trumpism is not just Trump. I mean, it has deep roots in the Republican Party. There's been a far right movement in the United States and, frankly, a conservative movement where you know, Trump's major priorities, whether it's the, the anti-immigration rhetoric, the, the racism, the conspiracy theories. I mean, these are all, you know, they're on vivid display in the modern history of the conservative movement. Um, and those things are, are certainly not going uh, away. The question is, um, who emerges out of this, this mix? And the, the reality, too, is that, remember, you know, Trump lost. He's uh, the first uh, sitting president to lose re-election since in 28 years. Right. So um, it's not as if, you know, uh, future Republicans have to harness some of his ideas, some of his energy, clearly, which were popular. But there's also some danger in just trying to be a Trump mini-me. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been interesting to watch sort of sort of the reaction of some key Republicans to the, the result of, of the contest, some sticking by Trump and kind of echoing his talking points about how the, the election was a fraud and, and others trying to sort of distance themselves from that position. Let me play this for you. Here's here's uh, Senator Ted Cruz talking to Fox News here about the election result. Uh, at this point, we do not know who has prevailed in the election. Uh, the media uh, is desperately trying to get everyone to to coronate Joe Biden as the next president. But that's not how it works. The media does not get to select our president. The American people get to elect our president. And and at this point, we've got numerous states that are that are very closely and vigorously contested from Pennsylvania to Georgia, to Arizona, to New Mexico, to Michigan, to Wisconsin. In all of those states, there are serious disputes about the vote totals. Okay, U.S. Senator Ted Cruz there, a Republican, and I'm sure those comments will be pleasing to uh, to Donald Trump. But speaking to Matt Dalek from uh, the George Washington University, I mean, there's no there's no chance Trump hangs on here. No way. No. I no. mean, what what Cruz just said, what Trump has been saying is, frankly, absurd. And it's dangerous because mm-hmm. there is, you know, it's not the media who has decided this election. It's the voters and the Electoral right. College. I mean, it's over. There's no mathematical way, one, there's no mathematical way for Trump to, say, get um, 100,000 more votes, you know, right, in Michigan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you, know, you just look at the states, like, there's no path. And, two, there is zero evidence of this fraud. I mean, they've said widespread fraud. Even Republican uh, governors, lieutenant governors in Georgia, for example, are saying there's no evidence of fraud. And yeah. these are Trump allies. Um, so, uh, you know, with the exception of Georgia, which is about a 10,000 vote margin and Arizona is still a little bit up in the air, but you know, other than that, there is no path. Um, this thing is bound to fail, but it is interesting because, you know, some Republicans are inching out like Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, and they're congratulating president elect Joe Biden. 
others are silent. And then there are others who are uh, frankly, just, you know, toadies and, you know, like Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz and they're, and they're yeah. towing the Trump um, uh, party line about fraud. So right. well, again, it gives you a sense of the contours of the debate to come. Right. Like, I'm sure they'll be able to identify maybe some um, questionable votes. Like, you know, Giuliani, Trump's lawyer, has been talking about, well, there are some dead people that ended up voting. Maybe they can be able they might be able to find a few examples like that, but not like the not like the widespread fraud that you just described. Uh, I mean, maybe, you know, there have been numerous studies of uh, uh, elections in the United States and the question of fraud. And it is extremely rare. I mean. You know, we're talking like almost never. And, um, and, and then the idea that they're going to find enough fraud to overturn uh, a 10,000 vote margin. No. Um, you right. can't overturn a 200 vote margin. So, right. you know, just the whole, it's just, it's spurious. Like there's just no basis in reality for it. And look, I mean, Trump has been operating this way for uh, really the past five years. And, and they you know, started operating this way with, uh, before uh, when, when he, you know, accused President Barack Obama of being uh, not being a citizen, not being born in the United States. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned Mitt Romney, and it's interesting to watch him um, and his positioning on this. And uh, here is Mitt Romney, another Republican senator, uh, again speaking to Fox News here, uh, and, and comments here on Trump's claims of fraud in the election. Have a listen to this. I think it's important to choose one's words carefully, because the eyes of our children are upon us. Uh, the eyes of the world are upon us. Every nation in the world is watching what the president of the United States says. Uh, and there's a battle going on around the world between authoritarianism and freedom. And it's important for the cause of democracy and freedom that we don't allege fraud and theft and so forth, uh, unless there's very clear evidence of that. And at this stage, that evidence, evidence hasn't been produced. Okay, Matt Dalek, is it kind of risky for a guy like Romney to clash with the president here? Like, is, is Trump still the most popular guy in the Republican Party? And, and do you take a risk as a Republican in, in criticizing him? Well, we got to go back a, a ways. I mean, first of all, Romney gave a blistering speech in 2016 attacking Trump as a fraud, a con man, yes. and saying he should not be the nominee. And uh, early this year, uh, which feels like a lifetime ago, he was actually the only Republican who voted to convict Trump in the Senate on impeachment charges from the yeah, House. Right. So, you know, Romney has sort of more or less uh, laid out his position uh, on Trump. And, and I don't think he voted for Trump. Um, I don't he hasn't told us that only who he voted for. But he's you know, he's been the other thing is, you know, he has a, a kind of independent base in Utah. He had just won. Uh, election to the Senate. He's not up for another four years. Um, so, but, you know, he's really the exception to the rule, right? You know, Romney, maybe Susan Collins, um, the vast majority of Republican officials uh, are remaining silent. They are refusing to basically recognize reality yeah. and admit that Joe Biden won. <clears throat> and I think that does, um, it does damage democracy and it damages people's faith in our electoral system and it's a real abdication of uh, okay. political leadership okay last question for you what do you think will will happen with trump like what do you think he's up to here and trying to fight and dispute the these results where well, there have been some news reports out today that he may start holding big huge rallies again to rally the people to his cause that yeah. the whole election was a fraud and then it was, it was a yeah. setup um do you what do you think he's up to you think he's maybe trying planning to run again for the republican nomination four years from now uh 
You know, I know there's speculation about that. It's so hard to know. I mean, first of all, yeah. when he becomes a private citizen, he's got multiple criminal investigations that are yeah. uh, ongoing looking at him. So he could be, you know, remember, he was named as individual number one, um, essentially accused of a obstruction of justice in the Mueller report. Um, and so, you know, we don't know, you know, I mean, there's a not crazy chance that he could be indicted on multiple accounts. Um, yeah. What I think he's doing, though, is what he has always done. When he lost to Ted Cruz in the Iowa caucuses uh, in 2016, uh, he accused uh, Cruz of basically rigging the vote. He right. said that there was fraud. You know, he never admitted, he never conceded the Iowa caucus. So, right. uh, and, and then when he beat Hillary Clinton, which he did in the Electoral College, he said that he claimed that, that the only reason she won the popular vote was because there were three million people who voted illegally. Right. And never produced any evidence. So, you know, what is he doing? He's doing what he always says, never admits yeah. defeat, never admits, frankly, reality. Yeah. And I don't think he's ever going to uh, concede. He's always wow. going to maintain this myth that um, that he won. And uh, and and he remains the most popular Republican and, and he'll still retain a ton of support. OK, that's fascinating to watch. And we continue to watch it closely. Matt, thanks a lot for coming on today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.